This is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 23, I think, through 35. It's a, it's a passage that you're going to recognize, but let's just, let's just read it. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. And then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and he threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. May God add a blessing to this reading of Matthew's gospel. That ended like that turned sideways fast at the ending, didn't it? Like in case you didn't get the parable, in case you didn't get the whole metaphor about this big debt. It's about you forgiving your neighbors. And if you don't, it's going to be kind of hard. It's almost like forgiveness, unforgiveness is the only unforgivable sin. And this isn't the only place in Matthew where Jesus says this. You know, he he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, like if you refuse to offer forgiveness to your brother, then, well, it's going to be hard for you too. And here's the thing with forgiveness. I mean, this is a parable about forgiveness. And so the difficult thing to preach this sermon is everybody already knows what it's about. And it's going to be really hard for me to say anything that everyone's eyes aren't just going to gloss over. And it's going to be like, I've heard this so many times from every other pastor. It's about forgiveness. And forgiveness is really easy to define as long as we're the ones receiving forgiveness. But then it gets a little blurry when we start trying to give forgiveness and define what does that really look like. And if you've ever really, really been hurt, you know what I'm talking about. Because forgiveness isn't just something that you decide you're going to do and then it's over. Right? Because sometimes that pain lives in your heart for a little while. Right? And then sometimes you might see someone or you might hear a song or drive through a neighborhood that triggers you. And now you're right back into this place of anger and hurt. And I'm not really sure I've forgiven them or not. And what does that even look like? How do you even define it? I'll give you an example. I used to be a youth pastor. And there was a girl who started coming to my youth group who had been abused by her father, you know, from somewhere around the age of 11 to like 14. And at this time, she was around 17. And he had still not gone to jail. In fact, they still had not even 
had the trial yet. Every time that it came up, his lawyer asked for a continuance and it got pushed back another six months. And every time that happened, her emotions did a roller coaster. And one day she went with us on one of those youth trips, you know, where they're great trips and the lights and the music and the band. And then they bring in some great speaker, you know, from from wherever. And this speaker was talking about forgiveness and how we need to forgive others. And in the hotel that night, like she and I sat in the hallway crying, trying to figure out what does forgiveness look like for a 17 year old who's been abused. And that's a hard question to answer. Does it mean that she shouldn't testify against him? I don't think so. I think she still should. I think there's still consequences. Does it mean she can't ever have a relationship with him? I, I don't know. I, so there's, my point in this is, it's not just as simple as saying, you should forgive your fellow brothers and sisters. Yeah, we all know that. Now let's all go home and eat fried chicken, right? I mean, like this is a lot more difficult when we put boots on the ground of what it looks like to forgive our brother or our sister when we've really been hurt. And another thing that's interesting to point out in this is that this is about forgiveness of sins. It's about forgiveness of wrongs. But this is a story that is about concrete finances. This is a story about debt. And sometimes when you say the Lord's Prayer, sometimes you say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sometimes we say transgressions. Sometimes we say sins. The, the reason is because, you know, there's never a one-to-one -one translation. And when you go from Hebrew, which is an ancient language, to Greek, which is a little bit more modern language, to English, which is... I mean, now we make up words all the time, right? So there's never a one-to-one -one translation. And so the answer is yes, all of it. And the reason that's important is because little things like this week, I was following one of those Twitter arguments about student loan forgiveness. And, and someone, a Christian, came on and said, well, forgiveness only applies to sins. It doesn't apply in the Bible to money. And I'm thinking, well, that's not true. And so I'm not advocating for student loan forgiveness or against it. The point is, our Bible talks a lot about forgiving actual debt, actual financial debt. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, you've come to the story of Jubilee, where every 50 years, we're supposed to wipe the slate clean and everyone gets their own family property again. Now, that would be an absolute wreck in the United States because none of us sitting in this room would have a place to live. You get what I'm saying, though? It's complicated. But there's a few things in this story that I think are worth pointing out to help us understand what forgiveness really is and what it means to forgive sins, what it means to forgive debts. And so let me point out a few things that maybe you have been told before and maybe you haven't, and maybe it'll add some light to this story. The first is that the debt was unpayable. So... The language there, it says 10,000 talents. Well, a talent was the largest denomination of money, right? It would be like a $100 bill. I don't know. Do they make bigger than 100? I've never seen anything bigger than a $100 bill. But whatever the biggest denomination of money is, that's what a talent was. So the biggest denomination of money and 10,000 of those. And 10,000 is like Greek for saying a bazillion. Like it's a number that is the biggest number that you can imagine. And so this is the biggest amount of the largest denomination of currency that we have. The point is, it's an unpayable debt. And that's important to know because that means prison time is not restitution. Prison time, in this case, would only be punitive. 
And so when the servant came before the master, there was really no realistic opportunity, even had the master sold him and his wife and all that he owned, that it would have begun to come close to paying off that debt. So the only reason for prison or selling him or whatever was just punishment. And that's important because that means the master's only real choice is to punish him and not get your money or forgive him and not get your money. You see where this is going now, right? It's different with him and his fellow slave. His fellow slave owed him a a debt that was a manageable debt about the size of your car. And the law says that you should pay back your debts. So it's an unpayable debt, and it's a number that is so astronomical, it's meant to be, you know, satire. It's meant to be, this is a number that is unreachable. But just so that we can all feel good about ourselves, and because I'm a little bit of a nerd, I tracked down and I, I did some of the math for us so that we would know exactly how much money we're talking about in today's dollars. So a denarius was one day's wages. And remember that the fellow slave owed his brother a hundred denarius. So one day, that's a hundred days wages. It's about three months worth of wages. In Hoover, the average household income as of 2019 was 118,000. So that works out to around $32,000 debt. Like I said, you know, a, a nice used car or a cheap new car, something like that. A talent would have been the equivalent of 20 years wages. 20 years, not 20 days, 20 years wages. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of wages, which at Hoover's annual household income comes out to $23 billion. And we all think, well, yeah, now it makes sense. Of course, no bank would ever loan someone like me $23 billion right? It's an, it's a number that's so astronomical, no one could ever owe it. And then if you're an astute follower of social media and you get really depressed when you realize that's only about half of what Elon Musk paid for Twitter last week, isn't everyone depressed now? Oh gosh. So the, the debt was unpayable. And the reason that's important is because there was really only one option for the master and that is forgive and don't get paid or punish and don't get paid. That's important to remember. Here's another thing that you probably didn't catch. And that is that the king was Gentile in the story. And the reason all the commentators say that is because of two things. One is when he came in and he he tried to reckon the accounts, the slave fell down. And if you read the King James version, it says worshiped him because the The language there is the same. When he fell down and prostrated himself and begged for forgiveness, it's the same word as worship. And in in the Hebrew world, they didn't worship their kings. And that would not have happened. Everywhere else they did. So, you know, Caesar put his picture on the coin and everyone was supposed to worship him. That's why worshiping Jesus was a big deal. So you get what I'm saying. Saying that Caesar is not king and instead Jesus is Lord, that was a political statement that was problematic when when Jesus came along. Every other culture worshipped their king. The king was some kind of deity. It happened in Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome. But in in, in the Jewish culture, it didn't. So they didn't worship the king. And the other reason is because 
Torah forbids selling someone's family in order to pay a bill. So this would have been a Gentile thing to do. Now, that's interesting because this is another story, like the Good Samaritan, of the good guy being someone who's not supposed to be the good guy, right? And, and you might also recognize that in the end, in this story, no one forgave anyone, right? The only person to forgive, at least initially, was this Gentile king who was owed $23 billion by this one slave. Who knows what he bought to get into that kind of debt, right? The slave didn't forgive his fellow brother, and the other slaves, when they saw it, they didn't forgive him either. They went straight to the king. No one forgave anyone except the one guy who shouldn't have. The Gentile king who represents, you know, I mean, going through the Old Testament, generally speaking, Gentiles are bad and kings are bad. And so it's like the worst of the worst. This is, this is another example of, as I said already, the Good Samaritan story with an unlikely hero and the person who sets the example is this Gentile king. You may remember the last line that he says as he's speaking at the end of the story is, remember that I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your brother? Now, that's interesting because that pulls straight from another Gentile source in the Old Testament. You may remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was sent to Assyria to, you know, to preach forgiveness and repentance. And he didn't want to because he hated the Assyrians, because all Jews hated the Assyrians. And then it got worse because he went and he preached repentance, and they did. And God forgave them and blessed them. And the funny thing about the story of Jonah isn't that he was swallowed by a whale. It's that it ends with him sitting on a hillside looking at the city, waiting for fire and brimstone to fall from the sky and destroy them, and they don't. And it has a, he has a little pity party. And, it, and God, God's like, why are you so angry? And he's like, well, because these are our enemies and they've repented and you've showed them mercy. And that's what God says. Shouldn't I show them mercy? They repented in sackcloth and ashes. Shouldn't I give them mercy? And shouldn't you also? Interesting, interesting that in, in both of these stories, we get examples from unlikely people as to how we ought to be godly. And then my last point is this, and it's the one that's most difficult to explain, but I find the most, most interesting to think about. It struck me that the servant's sin wasn't just not forgiving his brother. It's that he failed to recognize the blessings in his life and grow appropriately from them. Y'all hear that for just a minute because I think this happens to us all the time. It is so easy to look at someone else and point out what they're doing wrong, how they're doing wrong and whatever. And it is so difficult for us to learn and grow from our own personal experiences of life 
And then we just stay in the old patterns. And there's two ways to learn anything, the hard way or the easy way. And the servant chose the hard way. And that's awful because he could have chose the easy way. It was set right up for him, right? It was teed up, ready for him to go to town on. He was just forgiven this huge debt and he walked out and he forgot because he didn't appropriately apply it to, like he didn't create meaning in his life from it. And we do that. Because we, I think, Christians, I'm going to talk about Christians broadly now for just a minute, would rather be right. And the guy was right. That's the thing. The law was on his side. He had every right to throw his fellow servant in jail to not, for not paying the debt. He was right. And Christians will get on social media and on news shows and whatever else, and they will be right and they will be in the wrong. I think. And in this case, it's because he had an opportunity. He was given such a huge blessing in his life and he failed to learn anything from it. In this case, he learned, he failed to learn graciousness, right? He failed to learn mercy and it was right there. It was so easy for him. There's a, there's a word in the new Testament that describes this. It describes what happens when your mind gets a little bit bigger because you learn something new and you apply it to your life and you embody it and you put it into practice in ways that make the world better. And the word, the word there's not a lot of Greek words that I want you all to know, but this word you need to know, it's metanoia. And it's, it's a mashup of two words. Meta means bigger, so you, you know, or complete. So you've heard the word metamorphosis, right? To morph is to change. To metamorph is to completely change. It's like the biggest change. And noia is from the word mind. So you've heard the phrase paranoia, you know, outside your mind. So metanoia literally means to get a bigger mind. And Jesus said it all the time. He, he started a whole lot of his sermons with it, in fact, except you wouldn't recognize it by get a, a bigger mind because the way our Bibles translate it is repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at, at hand. And it means so much more, friends, than just feeling sorry for what you've done. It means learning from your experiences and seeing the blessings that God has given you and putting them into practice in real life in ways that cost you something in order to make this world more like God's kingdom, right? It's more than just feeling sorry for something. It's about getting a bigger mind because I just experienced something that everyone doesn't experience every day. It's so easy for us to think about all the ways our life is hard. Like this week, I had to put in a new air conditioner. Oh my goodness. If you haven't priced a new air conditioner, they're really bad. And it's so easy to think, woe is me, you know, our budget, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be able to make it, whatever. Without, you know, sitting down and thinking, wow, how awesome it is that, you know, my wife and I have had a paycheck solidly for like our whole marriage. That's a pretty big deal. You know, that's pretty awesome because we, we look for the bad. And true repentance is more than just feeling sorry for ourselves. It's recognizing all the ways that God has taken care of us and blessed us and provided for us and then embodying that and turning that into grace and mercy and love for our neighbors and our enemies. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in The Gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. 
If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.